Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight Segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varielli. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Elgord. Dan currently serves as the Chief Data and Analytics Officer for Emtogen, a bioinformatics company focused on the acceleration of oncology research discoveries through superior data and analytics services. The company was formed as a spinoff of the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, serving as the technological hub for an alliance of 18 NCI-designated cancer centers across the country called the Orion Network. Prior to Emtogen, Dan was the chief scientific officer at Covera Health, where he built a unique healthcare data platform which collects cancer diagnosis data and links that to information to longitudinal clinical data including pharmaceutical and surgical interventions. Dan is a Johns Hopkins alum, having received his bachelor's in both biomedical engineering and computer science, and he holds a PhD in biomedical engineering from Case Western Reserve University. Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So I think we we really ha- want to get into your, your interesting background, and, and I think in particular, we, we often don't cover uh, some of the more bioinformatics computational aspects of, of biotechnology, we, we focus a lot on uh, more wet lab research. So I'm, I'm really excited for this interview. Uh, I'm wondering first, if you could give us just a brief overview of, of your current position at Emtogen, and then uh, you know we could talk a bit more about how, how you've transitioned there from an academic path. Sounds good, happy to do that. Um, my, the, the role that I'm in right now um, is one that uh, covers kind of two Big uh, or two kind of core aspects of um, of what M2Gen you know does overall, and so the the, the two sides of my team, on the one hand, are uh, a group of uh, a group of people who focus on kind of the data operations aspect of, of our business, and so these are the the people who work um, directly with the cancer centers uh, that, that we partner with to um, to uh, focus on how you know, the, the processes and tasks and workflows is um, uh, connected to capturing the longitudinal clinical data for the, for the patients who, who um, have agreed to participate uh, with us, as well as um, the workflow around um, uh, identifying tissue samples that are available from these cancer patients and getting those tissue samples to sequencing vendors that we also uh, partner with and, and pulling that, those tissue samples uh, at the sequencing vendors through our uh, Sort of custom molecular uh, data generation uh, protocol where, where we where we generate um, genomic information about their tumor and about their health about their germline tissue and protein expression uh, information and, um, uh, and and so around building that that data set then um, uh, that comes together from from both the molecular and clinical sides um, and then the other side of my team is is this is a, a part of our company that's really focused more on the kind of science and innovation aspects of, of what we do. And so these are um, generally uh, kind of PhD research scientists with a kind of range of expertise um, that partner with the users of our, of our data set, both in academia and on the in- industry pharma side. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. And I'm, I'm excited to get more into exactly what Emtogen does and, and how all of those scientists come together to, to benefit um, uh, individuals living with cancer. Uh, getting to your background, so you have dual degrees from undergrad in 
biomedical engineering and computer science. So early on, it seems as though you understood that this nexus was important. Uh, for myself, I'm I'm really you know mostly a wet lab scientist, but there are a number of people that uh, are, are my colleagues that come into grad school having no you know comp comp sci background or bioinformatics background, and they really make that switch in grad school. Um, what was it like for you understanding that you were interested in both of these fields, right? Biological science and computer science. And how did you really leverage that to, to build your career from academia to industry? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, and I think it'd be a little bit of a mistake and maybe giving me too much credit to kind of uh, sort of in retrospect, uh, sort of claim that it was very well thought out and, and uh, kind of planned from the get-go. I, th I think that at the time, these just were genuinely two areas of interest of mine. I think I, I inherently had some sense that um, if you wanted to kind of, I mean, I both wanted, I was both very interested in sort of, you know, basic research and, and, and trying to kind of drive the state of the art forward and do innovative you know, novel things and, and kind of healthcare research in general. Um, but I think I also had a, had a, um, a desire to kind of see how that kind of basic research or sort of in, innovative, um, innovative things that, that can be uncovered through basic research. I, I really, I really, it really appealed to me to kind of also be in a position to see how those kinds of things could be translated to the real world and actually, you know, be demonstrated to have an actual you know, positive impact on real people, real patients, and sort of see that part of the process and be part of that part of the process also. And I think that's that's the part of the process that really requires engineering expertise and an engineering uh, approach. And so this sort of intersection of both scientific research and, you know, connected with the sort of engineering phase of, 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 the, of that kind of work um, was something that I kind of wanted to make sure I was able to kind of be, you know, participate in both both sides of, of you know the whole, whole part of the process, and I think there's a number of ways that this kind that that sort of basic science and healthcare research can end up um, sort of moving through that sort of engineering phase. Sometimes it is in the wet lab, but but in other cases there, there's a lot of opportunities to to move to sort of build prototypes of things and and implement real 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 um, uh, versions of of things that then can be tested you know with with real patients or, or in, in in real settings through uh, software and, 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 uh, and computer science uh, kind of engineering. And so that's sort of where I, you know, that, that's sort of where I ended up focusing my, my efforts and, and, uh, and, and really enjoyed doing so. And at least early on um, in my kind of academic research time, that was done more in the context of, um, or, or the sort of focus that I, that I had at that time was around medical imaging technology. And so th this is, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's some hardware involved also, but, but, but there's a lot of innovative things you can do if, if, you, uh, if you're sort of a computer science engineer uh, kind of person. And so I was able to help kind of build new capabilities into MRI machines uh, as an example, and, and through, um, through both some basic research that, that required some understanding of the physiology and biology of things being imaged within MRI uh, um, scanners, and also some understanding of kind of the physics of how those work, and then being able to kind of build software that that sort of took advantage of of, of these kinds of uh, of these kinds of things and implemented uh, sort of new ways that these technology. Uh, new ways that these MRI scanners and, and related technology could behave um, and, and therefore new kinds of data they could collect about patients or, or objects being 
imaged uh, within them. Uh, that, that was a really interesting, you know, kind of, that was really interesting kind of work to be a part of, and it really did kind of require this this sort of understanding of the intersection between the biology of the things that you were collecting data around and the the hardware physics and importantly software of, of, of how these machines you know were programmed to work. Yeah. Do Do you think that every biomedical researcher should have at least a, a little uh, bit of of computer science knowledge or, or programming knowledge? Um, yeah, I think that's foundationally critical. I mean, I, I, even if um, I think, especially these days, this was true. This has been true for a while, but but I think it's more true now than, than ever, and will continue to be uh, true. I think going forward, this is the the kind of most powerful way to kind of explore new ideas and and, uh, and really kind of. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's any area of of biomedical research or or or, or healthcare research where you aren't collecting data of some type. And 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 it really is impractical, you know, of course, to uh, to analyze data. Uh, in any other way, but, you know, through, through, um, through writing software. And, um, and so it's really important to have some, some capability and and really also importantly, some confidence around your ability to sort of process data and analyze it, uh, you know, in a way where you're looking for patterns and, and modeling, you know, what's happening within the data. And and this is something that requires, um, you know, computer science and programming skills. And the other thing I'd say too, is that the important, one of the important things I think to have in mind um, when when early on in your academic um, uh, portion of your, your your training, it's less important to um, I mean it's important to, to it's important to develop some computer science skills and some comfort and, and capabilities in, in, in writing scripts that can help analyze data, for example. Um, but it's also important I think to have a, a mindset where um, you know the specific software languages that you're learning at that time. Are, are really unlikely to be the ones that you're going to be, you know, there's not going to be a fixed set and it's unlikely to be just that one or those few that you're going to use for the rest of your career. And so it's important to also be comfortable and confident in your ability to sort of learn new programming languages and to be able to learn new, you know, kinds of tasks and capability, you know, tasks and, and, and activities that you would be right, you know, leveraging software skills and computer science for. Um, because as you're, as the field moves forward, the, um, you know, it's very likely that the programming languages that are going to be important for you in your career 10 years from now don't even exist now. Um, and, and so it's important to sort of have some ability and, and confidence in your ability in, in, uh, in being able to pick up new software languages, be comfortable adopting new software packages uh, to do new things in the future. Yeah. And I think, you know, having this understanding of your background, it seems like Emtogen is, is really the, the place that you were meant to be here. I'm, I'm wondering if we could transition to maybe speaking about Emtogen and, and specifically uh, their, their founding. As I had mentioned, they were founded from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, uh, with this idea that you could build up uh, th- this database from these 18 um, uh, cancer centers, uh, in, and that's part of the Orion Network. I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit more about what the initial idea was in, in building Emtogen and what their mission stands as today. The founding of, of Emtogen is something that, that happened, um, you know, a reasonable, a decent amount of time ago at, uh, now. I think it was in the, uh, 
I mean, it was around 15 years ago at this point when the sort of initial idea around M2 Gen was was uh, introduced, and I and it was at a really interesting time, I think, in oncology research and and uh, and, and genetic kind of technology um, in general. It wasn't that far after kind of the first human genome sequencing, you know, occurred maybe 10 years prior to that, and it was just starting to be recognized that th- this kind of information, this 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 kind of genomic information, is going to be the kind of thing that's going to that, that's likely to be, you know, a very powerful um, uh, a very powerful kind of driver for developing new oncology therapies and treatments for cancer. Um, and at the same time, there's a recognition that this data um, is, is, is the kind of thing that um, any individual healthcare organization, even the largest cancer centers, aren't going to on their own be able to accumulate, you know, a sufficient a, a, a data set of sufficient size to really give you an, an, enough um, enough sample, you know, of, of a of of cancer patients with a given you know a given cohort um, to, to really you know derive any any deep insights around them, and that if you really wanted to kind of um, take advantage of the true potential of this kind of data, it would need to be the kind of thing that was done you know through partnerships across cancer centers, and um, and these consortiums aren't that easy to kind of implement. I mean, it really you know these cancer centers, especially the large academic ones, they're they're big institutions on their own. Um, you know, there is a lot of collaborative spirit across the researchers at each of these cancer centers, but but each of them, in some ways, is also you know an independent business with a lot of politics and administrative you know aspects and considerations within them. And so, um, the vision was to build a consortium of some number of academic cancer centers. It's now grown to, to be eighteen cancer centers uh, that that we specifically work with through the consortium that, that we've helped bring about and and uh, and, and and help coordinate. Um, the activities across this Orion network, and um, and 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 through this through this partnership, the vision that we've been working towards um, achieving, and I think and I think have have done so to a large degree uh, at this point, is we've been able to aggregate in an effective way information about cancer patients across all you know eighteen of these cancer centers, and we're able to to build really large and and powerful data sets of, about co- you know cohorts of thousands of of patients with with very similar kinds of of, of, uh, of cancer. And, um, and a lot of the, uh, the, the, the challenges that, <clears throat> that we then have to focus on trying to figure out the right way to, to, to solve are the fact that um, the way the data is captured and, and stored and represented across these 18 centers is just a ton of variability. It, it, like aggregating this data set, you know, it's kind of easy to say, uh, it, it, it's easy to, it's, it's easy to talk about and, 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 uh, and, um, and describe, but but really, in terms of achieving that practice, there's, there's there's quite a lot of challenges. And so, each even each clinician within each cancer center has their own kind of style of of capturing information about each patient. You know, in, in the electronic medical records, and each institution, of course, has very differently configured electronic medical records. And the genetic and both the clinical data and the genetic data is captured in, in a lot of variable. Uh, in highly variable ways across each institution between this, each institution. And so a lot of the challenge was not just getting this sort of baseline agreement across these cancer centers to participate in the consortium like this, to build a powerful research data set that could be used to drive cancer research forward, but also figuring out the right ways to actually achieve that in practice. And a lot of that is figuring out how to solve uh, and address this issue of, uh, of variability in the data across these centers. Yeah, I think that standardization problem is something you deal with at at any level in biomedical research, whether it's, you know, 
somebody copying something down in a notebook differently or, or this at, at a huge level, the ways in which different clinical sites and, and even specific physicians um, document those data. I, I'm wondering if we can maybe have a more general discussion on what types of data are collected. And you mentioned genetic and, and clinical data. Um, I'm wondering what the implications are for those various types of data in terms of uh, what you've identified as um, three different sort of phases where this data can play a role. And that's sort of in the discovery phase, uh, in discovering new molecules, uh, in the area of translational and clinical medicine, um, and in post-market analysis. Uh, so, so how do these data drive, um, you know, change and, and, um, and research in those three areas uh, of, of clinical medicine? Yeah, so the, the data that, we, that, that uh, Amtogen focuses on trying to capture across these 18 cancer centers and, and across all the patients who have agreed to participate uh, with us in this effort um, spans uh, a number of clinical domains, uh, uh, let's say. And so this includes clinical data that, that uh, describes these patients' uh, uh, demographics and diagnosis and treatment and response to treatment. And then, and, and other important outcomes. Um, and this is data that we um, work on, uh, on on capturing not just sort of at one time point, but importantly, we, we revisit each patient's records uh, at a regular cadence to try and make sure we have a, a sort of a, a, a longitudinal view that's up to date with with how these patients' um, treatments are evolving and and what outcomes they're achieving or, or experiencing. Um, and then on the molecular side of the data set, there's a extremely broad you know, scope of the kinds of things we could include you know, in terms of molecular data. There's a lot of decisions that we have to make and, and thought we, put, we have to put into figuring out you know, what exactly do we want the molecular data uh, to include you know, for these patients. We, we, we have the opportunity to sort of pull tissue samples from these patients through whatever molecular sequencing protocol you know, we, we choose. And so what we've uh, and, and one of the things importantly that we're constantly thinking about is, well, how should we supplement this? How can we improve this? And in fact, we're just rolling out a, a, a sort of next generation um, assay for our whole exome sequencing that, that we do for, the, for this tissue right now that, that includes um, you know, expanded coverage of a larger number of, of oncogenes. Um, and so the molecular data that we're generating right now includes whole exome sequencing for tumor tissue, whole exome sequencing for germline tissue, and RNA-seq um, uh, data for the tumor. Um, and, and the way we approach this uh, also, you know, that there, there's other, there are other um, cancer center consortiums and, and, and companies uh, like M2Gen that, that build or, or sort of uh, construct data sets, you know, that, that in some ways are similar to, to, uh, to what we're focused on, on building. Um, one of the things that I think is a little bit unique about MTGEN's approach is that that we're pulling, we um, we generate this molecular data by bringing these cancer patients' tissue through this very standardized uh, protocol um, that includes, you know, sort of a, con a consistent assay that's applied to each 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 patient's uh, tissue, and so we we end up having this kind of exome uh, tumor germline and RNA seq data that's available for every patient in our data set in a very consistent manner. Um, and then your question about the, um, the applications of, of this data and these sort of different phases of, of what, of what um, uh, especially sort of pharma industry is focused on trying to leverage this kind of data for, uh, it's true that there's a lot of um, 
partners of ours that are using using our data um, and and working with us with our scientific team that are very much focused on the discovery phase of, of drug development. So um, one of the important aspects of the data we provide for them because it's this you know whole exome. Uh, paired whole exome um, gen- genomic data and the, the sort of longitudinal um, data, uh, clinical data about these about these patients, there really is the opportunity to kind of um, come up with new, you know, to identify new new druggable, uh, you know, targets and identify new cohorts that are not being, uh, or identify cohorts that are being underserved by st- current standard of care. And, and there really is, is an opportunity to sort of identify um, areas for, um, you know, important areas where drug development research should be focused on, understand, you know, where there are potential uh, new um, drug targets that, that, that should be the, uh, the focus of, of um, investment, you know, by these pharma companies. And, um, and in some cases, there's also an interest in even doing, you know, what, what, some, what some of the pharma industry call um, reverse translational research, where there are existing therapies that are maybe being used for a specific cohort of, uh, of cancer patients. And there's, uh, through a data set like this, there's the opportunity to understand, are there additional kinds of uh, patients with different prof- with different profiles that haven't in the past been thought of as, as candidates for a certain kind of treatment that maybe uh, given this data, we can see uh, that there might be a, a reason to think that uh, therapies that exist but aren't being used for them might actually be beneficial. Um, and then as we move forward in the, in the drug um, in the drug development process uh, and start thinking about the translational work and the clinical testing of, of drugs, there's a huge opportunity to leverage these kinds of, of, of data sets um, for improving the way we're able to actually evaluate the efficacy and, and, uh, and conduct kind of the, um, the validation of, of whether um, candidates for, for, for new therapies are, are actually, you know, effective and worth bringing to market. Um, I think there's a lot of, of course, there's a lot of strengths of, of uh, randomized clinical trials, and, and you know there's a reason why they're the gold standard, and that they'll continue to be uh, for some time going forward. But they're really the way they the way the way they're configured right now. They're they're kind of optimized for they're really they're really optimized explicitly for controlling you know controlling and removing the sort of influence of confounding variables. Um, and you know, of course, that's foundationally important. We want to understand what's the <clears throat> impact of this of this uh, you know drug candidate, this, this this new therapy that we want to actually isolate the the effect of. Um, and so these RCTs are are valuable for that reason. But on the other hand, these RCTs aren't optimized for doing things quickly. They they are extremely expensive, especially for um, evaluating new therapies for for patients with somewhat rare diseases. It really can be hard to recruit patients for them. Um, and then and then even and then alongside that, it's often the case that the patients who end up being recruited for for these randomized control trials um, and the way that these control trials are configured, it oftentimes isn't a great representation of, of sort of patients in the real world and care delivered in the real world. And then finally, because they take so long, because they're expensive and because they're, you know, they're, they're sort of done by these, um, in, in these, in these private studies that, that for good reasons are blinded, you know, while they're being conducted, um, you know, there's the, there's the chance that in some cases we get publication bias a little bit and, 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 uh, and you're going to sort of, you have this sort of, context in which positive results are a little more likely to, 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 to be seen in the trial, uh, maybe um, compared to what, what the efficacy you might actually experience with these drugs in the real world. And so for all these reasons, there, there's a lot of 
opportunity to leverage real world data collected, um, you know, across across cancer patients who are receiving treatment in, you know, in the real world for, 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 um, you know, for clinical, as they receive clinical care from these cancer patients. And that data can be used to supplement and improve and accelerate uh, the kind of data we, we are able to generate, insights we're able to generate from, uh, from these clinical trials and drug development phase. And then, of course, once drugs are on the market, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to continue to use this real-world data to get a, uh, a better sense of, or, or to be in a bit better position to understand what are the outcomes uh, patients are really achieving and experiencing from these, from these therapies. Do they align with what, what, the, what the expectation was following the clinical trial? Are there other side effects and, and issues that, uh, that we see uh, cropping up in the real world that, that maybe weren't, uh, we didn't, maybe the clinical trial wasn't sufficiently powered uh, to, to, to be able to detect. Yeah, I think increasing clinical trial efficiency is, is of the utmost importance. So I, I think data will be one of the keys to, to doing so. And in terms of, you know, identifying genetically validated targets using these data, I, I think that's a really interesting approach and, and really valuable for pharma companies. You, you know, th there's also... Uh, the idea that you could identify subgroups, it, you know, recently the um, American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, we saw these tremendous results with uh, individuals who responded to PD-1 therapies with uh, a sort of genetically validated biomarker. So I think, you know, th this platform is super powerful in that respect. Um, and from the perspective of data, as you collect data, uh, it, it becomes more and more difficult to store all of those data, right? And, and run these, these powerful um, programs to analyze those data. I'm wondering how you think about data storage and, and uh, Emtogen recently announced a partnership with Microsoft to enhance and scale its current data analytics capabilities. I'm wondering how that might fit into um, your ability to effectively, you know, store and, and work with these data. Yeah, those are really important considerations um, as these data sets grow and as the sort of community or ecosystem of users of, this, of the data grows as well. You know, we, um, we don't want to be in a position ideally of building, you know, sort of aggregating this, this data set, which is sort of, a, you know, in some ways like a living, a, 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 a living project that, that's continuing to expand and the data is continuing to be uh, uh, supplemented and approved in important ways, and um, we're, we're not really um, well served by by sort of being in this mode where every user of this data we sort of make a copy of it and, and ask them to sort of ingest it into their own analytics environment. Um, it's not a great solution because, of course, this data, as you mentioned, is is quite large and and it's actually. Um, you know, an expensive process in some sense, both in terms of computing costs and just in terms of like, you know, computing memory to, to have many copies of this data exist. And then it's also not, not a great arrangement for us because, um, because then it creates a lot of barriers and silos between the users of, of this data and, 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 um, and especially across the academic researchers whom we partner with uh, for, 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 um, for leveraging this data for, for drug, drug development and other kind of oncology research topics. Um, collaboration is really valuable and important. And, and, and you know, it's, it's true for the researchers uh, on the industry side in pharma as well. If we're able to create a platform where for the most part, the data stays put and the, um, and the, um, 
and the investigators uh, interact with the data in a centralized place and are able to kind of ex- ex- develop new analytics techniques and methodologies, and that those methodologies are then available for, for, for being shared, you know, in collaborative ways uh, by other researchers, then, you know, that, that really is uh, the kind of thing that can accelerate the, the value and, and the, um, the output of, of, uh, of these various research activities. And so working with a partner like Microsoft allows us to, you know, focus on sort of the core competencies of M2Gen and, and focus on our kind of unique aspects of our, of our core mission, which, which are, you know, figuring out the right ways to um, build this kind of aggregated data set and, and address all these, all these challenges around data variability and, 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 and make, you know, leverage our expertise around what kinds of data elements are important to incorporate into a data set like this, and how they should be represented in a data set like this, and, and not have to spend our time reinventing the wheel around, um, you know, data storage infrastructure and, uh, and, 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 and building the infrastructure to support computation and, and analytics. Um, and so it, it's really it's really important for us to have partnerships uh, with companies like Microsoft to help you know, provide that important, important kind of capability and input to what ultimately we need to deliver to, the, uh, to, to, make, uh, to make our data and services useful to the academic researchers we partner with and, and the researchers um, in pharma. Yeah, it seems really strategic, and and I, I think that is going to be a really important partnership. Um, just you know, scanning the the M two Gen website, it, it's interesting to see uh, a, a long list of publications, and I'm wondering what the role of publication is within M two Gen, and and you know what sorts of things are you publishing, and and uh, it, why is that important to the mission of of the company? Well. It's critically important. And foundationally, what our company is is uh, you know prioritizes above above all else, and what what our core mission is is, is to drive forward um, and accelerate oncology cancer research, and to help support the uh, the the um, discovery of new treatments and development of new treatments that are going to help cancer patients. Um, working with the academic researchers, especially well, working with the researchers both in academia and in pharma, are you know what what we believe you know. The, are, are the ways to actually, you know, sort of achieve this mission, and 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 it's 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 not the case that we believe we can build our own internal research team that's going to be able to um, leverage our leverage this kind of data set um, uh, in the way that that we'd be able to uh, compare it to being able to partner with all of these extremely talented researchers across these eighteen cancer centers that we work with right now, and the research teams uh, in, in in industry in these pharma companies who have, you know, extremely deep expertise and ability to leverage this data in really powerful ways. Um, and so uh, the role of publications um, is extremely uh, important, um, primarily in the context of relationships with the uh, academic researchers and the academic cancer centers that we partner with. Um, one of the, you know, it's sort of a true partnership I'd say between M2Gen and these academic cancer centers, it isn't the case that they're our customers or that we're their customer or, or, or you know, it's, it's not a relationship like that. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, the relationship is one where, where the goal is to collaborate around driving research forward and um, academic research is, is um, at the core of, of, of effective academic research is, is publishing new findings. And so, you know, that's something that we, you know, consider um, an important aspect of, of 
of what we need to be able to support. And, and, and in many instances, we're actively collaborating, M2Gen scientists are actively collaborating with um, the research teams uh, at these academic cancer centers and, um, and, and supporting the use of, of these data sets and also even supporting the kind of development of the scientific questions and the, and the kind of scientific process of, of, uh, of testing these hypotheses. Yeah, that, that's obviously very important in dealing with academic science. And to sort of move to a different aspect of, of your role, we've, we've learned sort of about, um, you know, how you manage these uh, data and analytics programs within M2Gen. I'm, I'm wondering about the ability as an executive to identify strong leaders, and in particular, how to find the right people with the right set of skills in an area like, you know, bioinformatics or computational biology, where it, it might require either one person who has uh, a background like you with, with biomedical engineering and computer science, or just bringing together the right people with, you know, specific expertise in either computational science and biomedical science. How, how do you how do you, as, as a leader in the company, try to identify the, those individuals who, who have the right set of skills to, to work for Emtigen? Um, it's a great question. Um, and, and it certainly is the case that, uh, that sort of recruiting and, and, and growing, the, grow, growing our teams you know, ends up being a big aspect of what we spend a lot of our time on. Or, or I should at least say, um, in recent, in the in sort of recent months and, and sort of phase that we're in right now at M2Gen, this is this is like a big aspect of, of, of what we spend a lot of our time and efforts around recruiting and 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 growing our teams and expanding the capabilities we have as as a company uh, to be able to better you know deliver on on the kinds of things we're, uh, we believe are important for us to address. Um, and I think the, you sort of touched on touched on some some of the things that I think are are the sort of important things. Uh, that enable you to do this well. Um, sort of core among them are this recognition that it really is this multidisciplinary effort, and 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 it requires multidisciplinary teams. And I think you run into you sort of make the the challenge of recruitment recruitment and hiring people and identifying the right people for these teams much more difficult if you try and try and you know target. If your goal is to try and find people who have you know, strengths across too many areas. And so it's, it is true that, that in general, a, um, you know, bioinformatics research team um, needs to have the ability overall of, of having strengths in, um, you know, genomic research and oncology uh, and computer science and, and, uh, and, um, and data science and statistics and, and, the, and the list can be quite large. And, and the, the, I think it's important to try and, um, adopt a mindset where you're not trying to find individual people who have strengths across all of those areas, but instead you try and build a team where there's complementary strengths among the team of, of the different people that you're going to bring into the team. Um, and so, uh, uh, so, so that's, that's important to sort of um, limit the scope of what we expect, you know, the strengths of any individual team member to be. And then the other, another aspect of your question, I think that's, that's worth maybe highlighting is that, um, People management and um, and 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 project management and and um, and sort of leading leading projects, 
those are skills up, up to, um, unto themselves. And, and they're often the kinds of things that aren't explicitly you know, focused on in people's academic training necessarily, but they're the kinds of things that some people in some cases have natural aptitudes for. In other cases, people have developed those kind of competencies through you know, having a role where they started to manage uh, other team members or lead teams you know, as they start their professional career. And those are important strengths to, um, to focus explicitly on also. So when you're building a team, there needs to be you know, some, some members of the team who have strengths in that area also. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that that's, especially since you mentioned that you're going through this growth phase, that that's really important and, and crucial to continuing that, that growth. Uh, and, you know, moving sort of away from M2Gen and, and having a, a broader discussion, we've talked a lot about how, you know, when, when you started out in this field, it was shortly after the Human Genome Project sequenced the entire human genome. And that was around the time that Mtogen uh, was formed as well. Uh, and since then, we've seen this boom of sequencing technology and uh, really data collection in all aspects of biomedical science and imaging and, and just our ability to do large-scale experiments that generate huge amounts of data. Uh, in parallel, we've seen improvements in in data processing and storage that somehow continue to increase exponentially. And it's really allowed us to have the processing power to analyze these data. So I'm wondering from your perspective, how you've seen this change over time and, and how that plays out practically and, and how companies are able to operate and grow and what do you expect for the future? Uh, can we see a continued growth in, in both data processing and uh, our ability to efficiently sequence genomes for less and, and less uh, uh, dollar amount per genome? What, what implications might that have for the future of, of biomedical science? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I can't... Um... I don't, I don't, you know, of course I don't have a crystal ball and I can't predict the future for sure, but, um, but it certainly seems that the, you know, I see the same trends that, that you're pointing to and, and, and we see the, um, the reduction in costs and, and increase in adoption and utilization of these sort of molecular sequencing uh, tech, technologies that are available now. And alongside that, we see this proliferation of other sort of adjacent kinds of, 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 of information that are being um that 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 we are newly able now to have to, to kind of have the ability to 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 leverage to get new kinds of information, um, not just what genes exist and mutations exist in, in a person's um, uh, genetic, you know, DNA, but but also what what genes are being turned on, what genes aren't, what uh, what do things look like in the environment around the tumor, the, the tumor microbiome, and um, and profiling of a patient's, uh, of a cancer patient's immune system and, and all these other kind of adjacent kinds of, uh, uh, aspects to their biology and physiology that, that, that are, that really are, are uh, giving us much more, co uh, context and, and powerful insight into how to understand the role of, of the genetic mutations and, and also how to understand, you know, other aspects that are equally, if not more importantly, drivers and causes, uh, of cancer. Um, and so those trends, I think, are going to continue. And, and as, you, as you also kind of touched on, without the ability to, to really effectively, you know, get our hands around these extremely large and complex data sets, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to, to, 
to take full advantage of them and 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 get the benefits that we, we sort of intuitively think we should. And so we need to have this companion. Uh, there needs to continue to be this sort of innovation around data analysis. And and, and as we're and and and, and you know, of course, that's happening also. But there's a lot of exciting things happening um, in the areas of uh, statistical modeling and importantly also machine learning and and AI techniques that are helping us. Um, helping us test hypotheses and even uh, leverage these sorts of t- techniques to, to identify uh, hypotheses that, that could be, you know, patterns in, uh, that exist in this data and pointing us, that, that, that will point us toward, toward treatments. I think the way we see this, you know, ho- hopefully, at least in my opinion, the way, the way this, the way these kinds of trends increase data and increase increasingly more powerful ways of analyzing this data end up impacting, uh, you know, cancer patients and, and, and treatments that are available to them. You know, we, we, we often, and we're almost, we're almost kind of, we're conditioned to expect the results of these clinical trials and, and new treatments as they're, as they're developed to sort of be, be uh, described to us in a way where, you know, it's, it's a, a new therapy that's effective for, you know, Forty percent of cancer patients with this kind of cancer, you know, receive some benefit from this new treatment. Let's say, um, and and um, and that's generally considered a good outcome. Um, I think that hopefully what we are starting, what we continue to move towards, is less and less a scenario where we have this kind of course ability to identify a cohort of patients that we think a new a new treatment should be tested within, or at least at the end of testing some new therapy, we're able to make statements alongside that, alongside ones where we say, you know, 60% of, of, of patients with this given kind of disease receive a benefit from this, this, this treatment. Instead, we'll, we'll be able to also say something about 100% of patients with this very well-specified, you know, profile receive a benefit, you know, from, from this treatment. And, and, and the key will be, I think, Really, this data. One of the important ways that that it's that it's going to going to be useful for us and and really drive um, drive forward the development of new new and more effective treatments is our ability to understand not necessarily what you know even if we don't develop new completely new treatments, being able to target patients more effectively and understand which which in a more precise way which subset of patients um, really are the ones that a given therapy is going to be effective for because we much more deeply understand um, the mechanisms of these treatments and the profile of these patients. I think that that'll really be, you know, uh, a, a great place for us to get to. And that's kind of where I see this trend headed to, at least in part. Yeah. And precision medicine is something that's in the mission statement of Mtgen. So, so that really speaks to our ability to really precisely identify these groups of individuals who will definitely respond to a specific treatment. Um, and, and so I'm hoping for that future as well. Thinking about the future, any advice that you could offer to grad students or undergraduate students who are interested in maybe the nexus of biomedical science and, and uh, bioinformatics and computational biology? Uh, from, from your experience, what, what sort of wisdom can you uh, dawn on us? Well, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I guess the first thing I'd say is that uh, I think it's, you know, a little bit of hubris and maybe not, 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 um, and not always like kind of the best perspective to, to try and overly, you know, plan out your future career trajectory and, and, and to try and like anchor yourself to a very specific path that you're going to try and stick to and move along. I think, you know, most people, myself included, you know, 
who, who, who are able to look back at, at what they believe is sort of an interesting and rewarding career um, is, you know, they, they sort of acknowledge that it was a little bit of a circuitous path that they ended up taking. And there was all sorts of idiosyncratic, you know, reasons and, uh, and, and unexpected opportunities that presented themselves that allowed them to kind of transition from one phase in their career to the next. So, so I think to some extent, I'd sort of preface, you know, my answer about advice uh, to, to, to what to do to, you know, and how to think about future career paths and things to consider. It, it, you know, the, the caveat is that you don't really know what the future will hold. And, and I think the important thing is to one, one important thing is to be open to opportunities as they present themselves and just try and position yourself in, in ways that, uh, you know, you maximize, maximize the chance that there's going to be going to be opportunities that are going to, going to evolve for you. And, and so that includes being very collaborative and, 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 and engaging with, with colleagues in both in your field and adjacent fields and being interested in what's happening, you know, sort of in the broader scientific community around you. Um, the other thing I'd say, you know, and this is now just, um, you know, uh, I don't claim to, I don't claim for this to be kind of a definitive answer or, 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 or acknowledge a certain, certainly alternate, alternate, um, room for alternate viewpoints here. But my my perspective is that I think it's it's useful to really kind of go deep and and, and to be narrow and deep. I think when when you're in your academic training, especially as you move into grad school, but e- but even starting as as an undergraduate, I think that it's a little bit um, easier and it makes for a more kind of I don't know interesting career path. I'd say to some extent, um, if you are starting out from a standpoint as you transition from your academic training into the you know professional phase of, of your career if you have a really deep you know clear expertise in a certain area and um, and I think you know there's there it's a it's a much more natural transition to sort of be uh, sort of occupy a space within within a, uh, an organization where you're an expert in some area and you have a really strong you know set of capabilities in, in some specific well-defined area. And you'll be able to, to then, you know, as you progress in seniority, you know, within an organization, you'll naturally, oftentimes, there's a natural progression towards, you know, becoming a little bit more of a generalist and start to start to develop skills around people management and and uh, start to be more involved in, in more strategic business decisions, maybe that affect the organization. And those are the kinds of things that I think are um, uh, likely to then, you know, that I've seen, you know, oftentimes driving someone, you know, who maybe is very deep and narrow um, and technically focused earlier in their career, you know, expanding into more of a business focused kind of role a little bit later in their career. And I think, I think that's a better, better approach, in my opinion, than maybe trying to be a generalist, you know, as part of your academic training, um, because, because there isn't as much of an opportunity uh, once you're sort of a little bit later into your professional phase of your career to develop that deep, deep expertise the same way there is in academia. And the last thing I'd say about in terms of advice is, um, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier in our discussion, but learn to learn to code and importantly also, you know, learn to learn to learn how to code. So, you know, there's going to be new programming languages, new programming packages and, and things of that nature that you're going to need to be comfortable and confident in your ability to pick up later in your career. And then also learn, uh, you know, make sure you spend enough time learning and understanding uh, statistics, because not only is that an important kind of technical skill, but it also is like a, a really foundationally important way of thinking about the world. And there's areas of statistics, for example, Bayesian statistics, statistics that really gives you kind of a, a, a framework for understanding how in a rigorous way you can leverage data and knowledge about the world and, 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 and together kind of, you know, the, 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 and, and, and sort of formulate then 
predictions about you know leveraging the data and and, and knowledge about the world using that to formulate predictions and 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 uh, and, and and having that you know be a uh, an important tool in your toolkit to, that, that allows you to then you know sort of be a scientist and be a rigorous thinker. Yeah, those are great insights for our listeners, Dan. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your career and the incredible work going on at M2Gen. And uh, we, we wish you the best for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks John. It's a pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varelli. Thank you for listening. Thank you.